Hello. The winner is. Oh, well, sorry, I didn't win it, Mr. Lemley. I know no one else I'd rather have beat me than you. I am the most frantically sought person in cinema land. I, Oscar, the Academy Award. Hello, and welcome back to the Snub Club, the podcast where we talk about the movie that has the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. I am your host, Danny Vincent, and I've got in my line of sight two other hosts. Will they be caught in the crossfire? I don't know. Let's find out their names. Um. Well, I'm Sarah Kanoff. I don't have anything clever to say this week. <laughs> <laughs> Who else is here? I'm Caleb. Wow, uh, Caleb. I like your name's like Prince. You got one name. That's it. No last name. No one's gonna be able to find you. Perfect. Um, all right. Let's get right into the thick of things. So this is a monumental episode. We are at the 20th Academy Awards. That means we have only 74 more to go, plus however many it takes for that show happen on the way. But you know. A solid amount. And of course, we still have one to go back to. But for the 20th Academy Awards, I got a little countdown for you. The most nominated film of the night had eight nominations. It was Gentleman's Agreement. It won three. It won Best Picture, Best Director for Eli Kazan, uh, great, 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 great grandfather of Zoe Kazan, star of The Big Sick. Uh, and it also won Best Supporting Actress for. Celeste Holm, who I assume is uh, not related to Ian Holm, despite my dumb Eli Kazan trivia, which isn't really trivia. Anyway, with five nominations, there were three films with five nominations. One of them was Great Expectations, which I hear is based off a very popular bestseller. Uh, It won two of them. It won Best Art Direction for Black and White Film, and it won Best Cinematography for Black and White Film. Good job. Fun fact I noticed, by the way, uh, I just want to mention this now. Uh, There was a film. That's probably one of the most considered classics of this year. That was only nominated for two Oscars, and it won both of them. And it's the color version of Art Direction Cinematography. And that's Black Black Narcissus, which I feel like seems like a much more... I feel like that movie pops out in my mind as a 50s movie for some reason. But I need to see it. I have the criterion. Anyway, (laughs) sorry, I'll get back to the countdown. Um, With another movie of five nominations was The Bishop's Wife. It won Best Sound Recovering, though. But there was one other film. That had five nominations and no wins, and that was Crossfire, which is what we will be talking about today. Sarah, what was Crossfire nominated for? Um, so Crossfire was nominated for Best Picture and lost to Gentleman's Agreement, uh, Best Director for Edward Dimitrik, and lost to Elliot Kazan for a Gentleman's Agreement. Um, Dimitrik was also nominated for Best Picture for The Kane Mutiny, um, Best Supporting Actor for Robert Ryan, who lost to Edmund Gwen for Miracle on 34th Street, Best Supporting Actress for Gloria Graham, who lost to Celeste Holm for Gentleman's Agreement, um, Gloria Graham uh, later won for The Bad and the Beautiful, and Best Adapted Screenplay for John Paxson, who lost to George Seaton for Miracle on 34th Street. A good movie. It is. Caleb, before we do your historic context, because I think it'd be best to actually end on it because I know what it is about mostly, I assume. 
if it's what you alluded to last week. Uh, well, last time. Uh, can I just give the quick fun facts about the ceremony, and then we can go into your historical context and then right into Crossfire? Yeah, sure thing. All right. Well, the only fun fact... Well, there's a fun fact and a not-so-fun fact, in my opinion, which is that Edmund Gwynn became the oldest Oscar winner uh, at the time, at age 71. Uh, I don't know when it was next broken, because the only thing the Wikipedia page gives me is... In 2011, Christopher Plummer would become the oldest Oscar winner. I'm like, okay, but that, I don't know. I think there was probably someone older. Yeah, there were people older beforehand. I don't know why it jumps to Christopher Plummer. Anyway, uh, and then <laughs> someone's got the page. I don't know who. Uh, the other fun fact is that this is the first year that an African-American man won an Oscar. It was a uh, James Basket for Uncle Remus as the honorary award for Song of the South. It's, uh, it's a historical import- important note, but it's not really something to be proud of. Oh, the other thing that I think is interesting, one last fun fact, unless you had something to say about uh, James Basket, Caleb, it looked like you were about to talk. Uh, you You go. Oh, it's an unrelated thing. Is that this is the uh, no film received more than three awards this year? This did not happen again for another fifty-eight years till seventieth Academy Awards. So the love was spread this year pretty far, but not for Crossfire. What I was going to say about Uncle Remus is that it's it's much like Hattie McDaniel's winning for Gone with the Wind, where you look back on it and it's. You know, it's it's definitely an achievement, but then you look at the actual role and you see it very much is a stereotypical role. And you know, it's it's a it's a pattern that continues for the Oscars to today where even if a person of color wins, it's usually not for um something that is daring. It usually is a more safe role. Yeah. I do wanna say if you want to hear some, I always like giving, because you give suggestions like this too, uh, Karina Longworth's podcast, you must remember this, the series on Song of the South, which is one of the few series I've listened to, and there's an entire episode about how the Oscar happened. Uh, that's pretty interesting, because uh, what I, from what I remember, it's not, uh, James Basket didn't do much campaigning for it. It was all Walt trying to prove that, give an accolade to him, so it proved it wasn't racist type of thing. So, <laughs> trying to legitimize it type of thing. <laughs> um, I don't know about the Oscars. I think he was probably allowed at the Oscars, but James Basket was not allowed at the premiere of the film. So. Yep. So, if you want to hear all about the history of Song of the South, that's a good podcast for you. But also, there's a reason Song of the South was... I remember having this really bad take in college, before college, where I was like, I just want to see it to see what this is. And I think I said it once to one of our mutual friends. He was like, you don't need to see it. And I was like, yeah, good point. Like, just very deadpan, like, you don't need to. And I was like, all right, yeah, you're probably right. And I really have no desire to actually watch it. Uh, I don't need to see it. I think one of my favorite uh, pieces of film criticism is when Lindsay Ellis said that uh, Song of the South perpetuates the vicious stereotype that black people are boring. Um, <laughs> which is why I've never watched the film is because I just hear it's very boring. <laughs> well, I hope your historical context isn't boring. Ooh, look Wait. at that segue. I know. Well, it's Proud it's it. it's fitting 
that you brought up, you must remember this because uh, Karina Longworth did 15 episodes on what I'm about to talk about. Um, did you actually binge it? No, no. I, I've oh, okay. already listened to the series before, but I went back and I listened to the specific episode on Crossfire, which I believe was oh. her second episode. Um, but of course, we're talking about The Blacklist. Um, the Blacklist was something that would go to define uh, Hollywood throughout the late 40s and into the 50s. Um, and we tend to think of it as something that happened primarily in the 50s, but it was, it had predecessors earlier on and it continued into the 70s. So it was a pretty um, continual thing. But, um, We've kind of had, in the 30s, when we were covering those movies, we talked about the Great Depression. Obviously, in the 40s, we talked a lot about World War II. Both of those tie into the history of the blacklist and to um, fear of communism as a whole. Obviously, as you can imagine, during the Great Depression, um, union rates rose up and people's interest in left-leaning economic theory kind of grew, which, of course, led to suspicion from um, rich people especially Walt Disney. He was very suspicious of communism and blamed it for a, uh, a famous animator's strike. Um, and he pops up in the 40s to kind of support uh, the blacklist. Um, and then it was probably going to come to a head in the 30s, but then World War II happened. And because we were friends with the, or allies with the Soviets, we kind of backed off on demonizing communism. There was even some movies that sympathize with them we talked about one of those a little while ago on the pod um but once that ended and it kind of became pretty clear that we weren't going to have a productive relationship with the ussr um anti-communist sentiment started to bubble up again in 1946 the founder of the hollywood reporter william r wilkerson wrote a column and in that column, he started naming a lot of suspected people uh, in the film industry um, who were possibly communists. Uh, the House on American Activities Committee took that list and used it to make their own uh, basis for an investigation. They eventually got like 19 people who they called. And the most famous of these were there were 11 people, um, one of which testified which was a playwright, uh, Baltar Brecht. I'm probably mispronouncing his first name. Um, Bertolt but Brecht. he was a German. Bertolt Brecht. Yeah. We, we read him in school. At least I did. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Yeah. He was a German. He came over here, uh, fleeing the Nazis. And he basically, um, cooperated with the committee, did not say he was a communist, but, um, still, you know, showed them a fair amount of deference. And then the next day he got on a plane and went to Germany and never came back. Um, the other 10 became the Hollywood 10 who did not cooperate, refused to answer any questions. And for the most part, just tried to shut down, um, by talking about how unconstitutional, uh, the whole investigation was. They were sent to prison for contempt. At first, Hollywood tried to back them up. But when it became clear that this wasn't just going to pass, they uh, uh, pretty much threw them under the bus. Uh, this happened most abruptly with um, all the major studio heads coming together at the Waldorf Hotel and putting out a statement that would become the Waldorf Declaration, 
where they basically outlined, we're not going to support these people. They're not going to get jobs. Anyone who wants to work with us has to denounce communism and all this stuff. Um, the Hollywood 10 would go on. There were a t- ton of people blacklisted, but the Hollywood 10 were the most uh, publicized. Um, of course, the most famous of those being Trumbo. Um, they would not get upfront work for a very long time, except for one, which we will talk about today. Um, the director of our film <laughs> decided he he wasn't actually a communist either. He had briefly been in the Communist Party, but he decided uh, the price was not worth paying. So he snitched and he named names and he got to have a successful career into the 70s because of it. Uh, while these other people went to jail and then uh, did not get work for over a decade. Yeah, his uh, he's uh, Edward Dimitri? Dimitrich. Dimitrich. Okay. Uh, he's most famous besides this for directing the Kane Mutiny, which I'll be honest, I did not realize until Caleb just explained it to me, and I opened his Wikipedia page now that he did name names, and I was like, wow, that's so cool that he got a major movie in Europe afterwards after he fled, and he got so many nominations, and I'm like, oh, of course. No. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's one of those things where I can't, like, part of me is like, yeah, I can understand why he did that, especially when you look at it, it's like he was definitely not one of the true believers. But at the same time, he was a snitch and he was a terrible person. Yeah. Well, another notable name, um, a couple years later, 1952, um, Elia Kazan uh, testified as well. And mm-hmm. when he won his honorary Oscar in 1999, um, a lot of people booed him, even years later. So it, it definitely followed them around. I mean, the son of William Wilkerson wrote an apology a couple years ago uh, in The Hollywood Reporter apologizing for his father basically starting everything off. It's one of those things where every, like, a ton of people at the time knew this was wrong. And it was only like super slimy people like Ronald Reagan and Walt Disney who supported it. But, you know, just no one really had the conviction to stand up to Congress. And I feel like that is a because we will talk about this while we talk about the film. But let's talk about Crossfire. Um. Well, I have two jokes to get all the way first. If you guys want them? Womp womp. This is the. I don't know if you guys pay attention to current uh foreign blockbusters, but this is the original R R R. Because we got three Roberts here. Same joke with the same punchline is a film by Daniels everywhere we're all at once. We got a film by Roberts here. You just dated this episode so badly. (laughs) I know. That's what I was thinking. But, you know, I've dated this uh, this episode before. Also, the previous episode before this has us talking about the Will Smith slap, which already feels like it was but 40 years ago. But that's <laughs> They're going to get a divorce now. It's the biggest, ho- it's the biggest divorce <laughs> in Hollywood. Uh, I, I need syndication on that, but I'll look after citation on that, but I'll look afterwards. <laughs> um, would Will Smith anyway. name names? I feel like Will Smith would name names. Will Smith would definitely name names. He would, and then he would have a tearful apology about it. God is calling me. <laughs> but to me. everyone except for the person he named, named the name on, he apologize to them. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, so the movie. Let's give our uh, general thoughts. I liked it for the most part, not knowing anything about the director. I think, um, and we can get into this later after we give our general thoughts. Um, I think it gets a bit didactic at points, but it being 1947 and it tackling what it does makes me kind of forgiving of that. However, that said, I did look at the production history on Wikipedia a bit right before it recorded, and I want to talk about that too, because it makes me lose a little bit of my, oh, okay, towards this, but I don't know. I liked it for the most part. It's a solid noir that tackles the big issues. I feel like it's the first film we've really seen that really feels like an Oscar movie in the sense that it's trying to be about a social issue, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know. I liked it. I don't, I, I'll get into more why when we break it down, but yeah. Um, I mean, I thought it was okay. Um, I don't think it was a noir. I think it it's very similar to Alibi, the first film we covered. And I also don't think that Alibi was a noir. I think that it's very dated, I guess. It's considered a B-movie. And there's, like, some actors that were, like, silent movie actors. There's one that's really interesting that I want to talk about. And it just, it's not a bad movie. I just, I think that a B-movie is probably appropriate in labeling it. I definitely don't think it's a noir at all. <laughs> it has noir leanings. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure I'd call it noir it definitely is i would agree with you danny very socially conscious um and i know the the head of rko at this point um was uh dory sherry i think is how you pronounce his name he was very much into these type of movies he wanted to have movies that had um had like social meaning behind them um and so that's super interesting. I do think I I liked it. I think it has a certain level of you can either call it simplicity or laziness behind the technicality. I like to lean towards simplicity, but I definitely think that it is less produced than some of the other films we've seen. For me, that added to its charm. Um but I can see how that could also be a hindrance to, for some viewers. And it's, I just want to add that um, the best patron winner that year um, that it lost to uh, the gentleman's agreement or just gentleman's agreement um, was also about anti-Semitism and was also considered, you know, a social issues film. Um, that being I said, that movie. I've, I've heard good things over the years about it. Yeah, it's anyway, got go Gregory on. Peck in it. That being said, this movie is not really about anti-Semitism. It's, it, you know, I think it's, I wonder how much of it is coming out of World War II with an understanding of the Holocaust, how much this was on people's minds, um, but they weren't really digging into it like a lot of the 
kind of rote stuff you see where um things try to tackle uh issues around like policing um today where like it's like uh you wanted to do something but you didn't really think it through um well well let me back up a little bit <laughs> so it's based on a book yeah i want and... to okay i want to talk about this too but go on yeah so it's not that they so it's based on a book it's very similar you know a man gets murdered um it's it's a hate crime essentially um in the book the man who gets murdered is a homosexual interesting so because of the Hayes code at the time um they could not portray a homosexual in any in any form regardless if it was positive regardless if it was negative they just couldn't show that depiction I think the word that they use is like pansy or something. It's really not a good word, but that was what was in the Hays Code. So it just so happened that after the war and whatnot, it just became kind of a hot topic. And I got to say, um, I'm trying to say so in a certain way because I don't want to sound dismissive, but I think that this, and it's not dismissive I read, to be clear. I don't want to be dismissive towards the film and tackling anti-Semitism. But I think that the homophobia theme, from what I see in the film, would have worked a lot better for where the film ultimately goes. Because I really, the whole time I was thinking during that didactic scene at the end where he's talking to the guy from Tennessee and he's like, all like, I cry, like, this was killed just because of who he is. And this is about racism and anti Semitism. But when it's all white people, on screen i don't like you i I don't want to be like you can do that if it's about gay people i don't want to say that you know but you you know what i'm saying right like it really the entire time they're saying that i'm like yeah but like i don't know i just can't deal with the false equivalencies where people are like you're just from tennessee people could make fun of you it's like that's not the same thing as being jewish you know and i get why Mm -hmm. it's there it's there because it like there's a character there that's like that, but I don't know. I just it it lost me at the end with that. That's why I call it didactic more than anything else. Is that it's saying that it's and I again I don't want to be too hard on it because maybe this is super progressive for 1947. But to me, it's like it feels a little proud of itself. And to me, maybe Gentleman's Agreement does it better. I don't the know. problem I had the problem I had with the ending was. That it it very much is the this is like this is a very this is a rare thing. Most people aren't hateful, but this one guy was. Yes. And if we let even one, yeah. and of course today we would look at this as like no, it's about the systems of raci- racism. Even to dive into going back to Huak, Huak focused on a lot of Jewish people, like when they were mm-hmm. investigating, and they very much like they refused to investigate the Ku Klux Klan because they saw it as a purely American organization. Similarly, when they were targeting movies, they targeted a lot that dealt with racism and anti-Semitism. So like, you know, there was, there were a lot of structures that this, this film just either ignores or, uh, Dimitri wasn't aware of. (laughs) I, I, I do think that like, I admire it for what it is doing at points, but again, it just feels 
it feels a, a little too proud of itself for me, especially to be like, we're making this thing that is talking about how dangerous it is to have prejudice and how you can't just hate someone for being part of a group. But, and I get that there was a production code, but the fact is, is that this is a sanitized version of, well, not sanitized, but it's a changed version of the story because the original version was considered too uh, taboo at the time. I don't know. I think I'm just repeating myself, but I'm just saying that's why it irks me. And I think, I'm sorry, yeah. You know? To get into the story of Yes, Crossfire. we can get into the story. Yeah, we can get into it. It takes place in Washington, um, and a man named Samuels has died. Um, and the investigator of this um, discovers that he had been uh, he had been with three soldiers uh, the night he died, and he's trying to figure out which of them killed him. One of them is this guy who's run, who's disappeared, and is the one that all the evidence is pointing to having killed him, but it just doesn't add up. Um, and Robert Mitchum, who is a sergeant in this person's platoon, is trying to clear his name. The other two, who we find out were the ones responsible, one is a anti-Semite who killed this person because he was Jewish, and then the other person was complicit. Uh, and the the other person, Floyd, he doesn't matter too much because he just the anti-Semite kills him because he's afraid that he'll rat to the police. He it really matter, comes but down. He's the reason he's caught. So, uh, he's yeah, a, yeah. What's from, the word for it? I don't know. I yeah. From the, a minutia perspective, he matters, but like yeah. the big scope of this is there's, there's a detective and he's trying to find this killer. There's the person being framed. There's a person framing. And then there's Robert Mitchum. Who's there trying to, trying to get the right person caught. I also think Floyd, though, okay, you're right, you're right. I think, though, Floyd, right? I think Floyd is also key to why this movie, social message to me, doesn't totally work, right? Because we're told that Monty, who's the guy who eventually is the the anti-Semitic who murdered him, we're told that... you know, at the end, it's what you said. You said at the end, it's like people are, you get that big speech where it's like, people are good and there's some bad apples out there who just hate everyone. But the thing is, is that he just kills his friend to cover up his tracks. It has nothing to do with his friend. Do you know what, you know what I mean? I feel like it's kind of, it's diluting it a bit. Maybe I mean, I'm, yes. Maybe I'm being too harsh on it. <laughs> yes and no. I mean, there's one line at the end that's really stupid where, well, when he kills Floyd, he says something to the effect of like, he, to really hammer the point home and excuse my language, but this is in the film. He says like, oh, I hate Jew boys. And it's like, why did you tell Floyd that? Like, I'm pretty sure he already knew, but the, the line that was really stupid. So this whole movie, he's using the same terminology in, in front of the cops and, um, and the cops are like, well, I, I, it was so obvious that it was him. I can't believe we didn't, we didn't come to this conclusion earlier. Like, it was so obvious why he killed him. And it's like, yeah, it was. So, like, why are we hammering <laughs> the point home so hard? Like, it's just so, like, I don't know. It's just, there's so much, like, preaching. And, like, I get it because this was, like, the one of the first films where, 
this happened where it was this like preachiness, but it's so over the top. I think at the beginning, I I think at the beginning it works because like you're getting introduced to these characters. You still haven't met Mitchell, who's kind of the uh, the guy who's being framed, but they're having kind of these straightforward conversations. You know, Robert Mitchum has some fun banter with the detective. All this stuff is going down, and then uh, Monty just drops this line about how some people were able to manipulate the system and get out of going to war. And it becomes very much this trope of like Jewish people controlling uh, politics. I think that part is very effective because he says the quiet part out loud and you're not expecting it. It does then kind of continue and he becomes more and more of just like a, like a serial killer esque character. Um, I think that works less and less as the film goes on, but I think that initial moment where you find out that he's an anti-Semite, it really, it does kind of, it struck me at least. I will say that for me personally, the first time he used the term, he uses it a lot in this movie, the one that Sarah said, uh, Jew boy. Um, I honestly, I, I clocked it, but we've seen so many of these older movies that have these casual things in it that I was legit like, oh, okay, like, that's bad, but I'll put it in my notes to bring up while we're talking. But then it was like, oh, okay, no, that's what this movie is, you know? Um, so I think I do. I think it is a nice little slow build to being serial killer. But at the beginning, I agree that it is a little more nuanced than that, especially considering what we've seen around the time in relation to how subjects like these have been tackled or have not been tackled and just existed within the film. I feel like if this film was made today, or maybe, no, if it was made today and it was the original concept, I feel like Monty would be also gay because that's just how these movies are. It feels like it's, it very much feels like the same vein of it. Like, like he hates him because he is him. Like it's that kind of messaging, but it's like pre that, like that's what this movie feels like. The power of the crossfire. Sorry. <laughs> I think Monty's kind of an interesting before he just becomes a serial killer. He has an interesting character where he's an ex-cop and he thinks he's he thinks he's smarter than he is and he's he has very strict ideas around what it means to be in the be in the army um or they might be marines, I can't remember. Um and I find all that interesting is how he's building up this structure around him. And I feel like if you do bring in the idea of him being gay, I, I wonder if it would be more effective of Mitchell's goes with Samuels and then he's infuriated with the idea that another uh, another officer, or not officer because they're not officers, but another serviceman could be gay. I kind of wonder if that would play better. It definitely won't fall into... Oh no, kind of the gay danger stereotype. Um, I'm a little curious about the novel now, but I'm curious enough to seek out of a novel from 1945 that's been forgotten to try to see how it's different. Um, uh, do, do we want to do a full plot breakdown for this movie, or do we just want to jump around with stuff? We can jump around. I mean, it's jump pretty around. straightforward. I mean, basically, all you need to know, Samuels dies. They try to frame a guy named Mitch. The cop, Keeley, gets Mitch out of it because Mitch saw a prostitute 
but it's actually the prostitute's husband that gives him an alibi. And then they use this other soldier named Leroy to catch Monty. Um, Leroy's from Tennessee. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> it's really important. No, and, no, no, no. <laughs> and basically Monty runs away and they shoot him and it's a nice uh, button because I think at one point they say like they say like they're like how are we gonna get him like how are we gonna prove that this was his motive and then they shoot him dead and they're like well that takes care of that yeah I gotta say that's what I was gonna say let's start at the end where it's like this whole thing again 1947 but it's really funny like this is like a progressive thing where it ends with the cops shooting an unarmed man running away even if he is an anti-Semite oh <laughs> like, this is this is very pro-cop. Um, <laughs> Incredibly pro-cop movie. <laughs> and also, like, you think it's going to be anti-military, but it really isn't either, because Keeley's there right along with the cop. And it's, I, I, do, I do think they, they play very much into this uh, soldier's infidelity, which I find interesting. I figure post-war, you'd be a little bit more, like, sanitary with what you're how you portray servicemen, but I, I did kind of like that. But other than that, it's very pro cop, very pro military. Yeah. It really, it really does stick out to me. I, I, I found it so negative on this movie when I actually did like it a lot. It's just that like, there's so many like caveats for me where it's like, yeah, but <laughs> I do think it's well, interesting that even back then they were like, how can we prove it was a hate crime? Because, like, even now, it's, like, just use it as an excuse. I just, like, also, like, we gotcha here as if this evidence would really hold up in court. This evidence would not. We wrote the wrong address. It was the, it was the place next door. Well, I think that there's a word for this, isn't it? Uh, is this entrapment? Or it's pretty close to what it feels like. <laughs> well, you know... <laughs> Um, this is why we need an insurance salesman in the movie because they're the real detectives. It's true. It's true. They, well, we, they're the heroes is, of the forties. It always is somebody who's not a cop who's investigating it, and the cops are just like, "Well, all right." Let Let's talk about Mitchum um, because, of course, Robert Mitchum oh, wait, is wait, probably. Wait, wait, wait. We, I was going to say we got to clarify here. Now that we've brought up the character named Mitch, Mitchum is Keeley. Just to the listeners, I, I just want to yes, say that because I think it can be very easily confused. Go on, sorry. Yeah, Robert Mitchum is one of the is probably the biggest actor in the movie. And it was an interesting role for me because I'm used to seeing him play a villain. And when he pops up, I'm like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder if he had something to do with it. But no, he's a pretty straightforward good guy. It's honestly a pretty boring role for such a good actor, but he does get a lot of fun banter. I guess. I mean, like, I don't know. I, I agree. He does get fun banter. Um, he doesn't stick out to me, though. In all honesty, I don't think either Finley or Keeley really stick out to me. Well, and he, Robert Mitchum ended up saying that he didn't like the role because he felt like anybody could have played it. So I feel like he probably agrees with you. Oh, yeah. Good I, for what me. I do like about um, the detective is that he's so bored with everything. Like, he is so uninvested. And after seeing two movies where it's like insurance salesmen are in their midlife crisis and they're pretending to be detectives, seeing an actual detective who's just like, I don't actually care about any of this. I'm just tired. 
I, I found that kind of refreshing. I'm looking up the act. The actor who played um, Mitch really had a like distinctive look to me. And I'm looking at him now. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page, which is always interesting when you find an actor with a big role in a movie like this who doesn't have a Wikipedia page. Um, and I still don't know what he looks like to me. Who looks like he just has a very distinct look. Maybe Kyle Chandler. That's my guess. Out, he stuck out to me. I'm sorry. That's all I'm really saying. I'm sorry. I don't really have much to say about. Well, I searched Mitch. George Cooper, and I just got. I just got Sheldon Cooper's. Dad. You have to search George Cooper Crossfire. <laughs> this is easily his biggest film. Easily his biggest film. He doesn't have too we, many others, right? He does look like Kyle Chandler. You're right. Uh, he was in Les Miserables, 1952, as student uncredited. He has 19 oh. credits. Some, a lot of them are TV. So he got this shot is at definitely his biggest role. His one uh, archive footage thing is from an episode of uh, American Cinema TV documentary for the film noir episode. Hmm? <laughs> Sorry. His second thing he was in was in a movie called Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome. Do we want to dig into why or why not this is film noir? We can. Uh, I just feel like, to me, I, I hate to be like, it's film noir because I feel like it. But that's kind of what it is to me. Because to me, it's just like this has the same hallmarks that um, Double Indemnity and The Killers had where it's like, we're talking over a flashback and here it is. You know? I just feel like, and I said this before, I just feel like it's so it's so much closer to Alibi because I feel like it's almost there, but there's still, I feel like, especially with the killers, like the flashbacks were so frequent and it was like you really were in different places at different points in the movie and time was just not chronological. And I feel like this is all, it's still all relatively chronological. I mean, we really only go back in time twice and it's like the same moment and so it's not even really like a you know it's just it has the same idea it has like femme fatale it has um you know a murder it has the femme fatale is what got me there too yeah i just i don't think that it's filmed i don't think the cinematography is there i think the cinematography is doesn't have enough shadows it doesn't have enough you know of that sure like, yeah sure i'd agree with that it's not i mean the cinematography enough. is cinematography is pretty cool i will say that um there's one scene where monty walks into the frame and it's really cool there's a lot <laughs> of good close-ups in this head. movie and yeah the camera well, and that's movements the thing too, too are so it, good and that's Sorry. why it reminded me kind of of alibi is there's a scene where they're looking at uh like a paper we're looking at like a paper and it's like you see that close up and to me that's like such a silent film mm-hmm. hallmark and it just feels like it's kind of reminiscent of a silent film versus you know in in the midst of all these noir films yeah i think it doesn't borrow enough from expressionism for it to really feel like film noir um i would say the scenes in the theater kind of get there um but not enough to do the whole movie structurally there is something there that resembles film noir you can definitely tell that it is contemporary with it um but i think the other thing that kind of makes it not feel like film noir is that 
while there is a certain post-war cynicism to some of the characters, especially like uh, the prostitute's husband, it isn't cynical enough. And by the end, it very much is, well, the institution sure have done their job right and gotten the bad guy, which doesn't feel, feel super noir to me. Okay, so let's vote. Noir or not noir? I think I'm going to be alone. I vote noir. <laughs> I vote not noir. I think it has some influences from noir, but I wouldn't put it as noir. I swear I thought you were going to be like, uh, I think it is and it is <laughs> just not break the tie. Um, all right. So, I don't know if there's anything else you guys want to talk about, but I do know there's one thing we got to talk about, because we're going to talk about her when we talk about our options on what to vote for, which is uh, Gloria Graham as Jenny Tremaine, which is who well, I would give this movie the award of, this was, the no- this was who you singled out? <laughs> so, I did want to talk about her, and I feel like... I want to talk about her husband, too, specifically the actor who plays her husband. I thought he was great. He was one of my favorite parts of the movie. Well, <laughs> so this movie, as we've learned, is about a man who gets beaten to death. And so the guy who played her husband, let me pull up his name, Paul Kelly, um, uh, his Wikipedia, the second sentence of his Wikipedia page says, his career survived a manslaughter conviction tied to an affair that caused him to spend time in prison in the late 1920s. Um, <laughs> the picture next to him is just him smiling. <laughs> I know, it's great. So he, so he was a holdover from silent films, and he went to prison, he served time. This is just how crazy the, the old times were. So he, he was in San Quentin. He was sentenced to 10 years and only served 25 months. Of course. Conditions of, his re- <laughs> conditions of his release included that he must not marry for 18 months after his release. And they would have to oh, take a such job. a long as a- time. <laughs> <laughs> and they would have to take a job as a clerk for $30 per week. Uh, he found working as a clerk untenable and convinced the supervisors of his parole to allow him to return to acting on Broadway with the condition that he continued to be limited to an income of $30 per week. Um, and years later, he played the part of a San Quentin warden. Wait, did, so, did you recount the story of how, how the assault happened? Oh, so let's see. So on April 16th, <laughs> on April 16th 1927, a drunk Kelly confronted fellow actor Ray R- Raymond over Ray his Raymond. affair with Ray. and love for Raymond's <laughs> wife, actress Dorothy McKay. Raymond, who was also drunk, was no match for Kelly, who was considerably larger than him. During their confrontation, Kelly had hit him several times and left him on the floor. Uh, McKay denied claims in court that she had been romantically involved with Kelly before Raymond's death, but Kelly's love letters to her were introduced as evidence. She was charged with felony conspiracy for an attempted cover-up. I want to apologize to the uh, family of Ray Raymond for laughing at the name of the guy who got murdered. Oh, excuse me. This sounds like. I mean, this sounds like all of the movies that we watched. Like, this is the plot. I find the eighteen months to get married thing really <laughs> silly because it's like, and maybe this is just a sign of the times. Eighteen months to find someone who you will want to marry seems like super he rushed. Like, he got married again in nineteen forty-one. In 18 Actually, months to find someone who wants to marry you after you just got out of San Quentin. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Oh, no. Hold on. Never mind. I'm sorry. 
he he uh never mind. Dorothy McKay was married to in 31. So a couple years later. It's like four years later they got married. Those two. Wow. True love. Shortly after the expiration of the parole condition. <laughs> so I mean this really doesn't have anything to do with anything. I just thought it was interesting because it sounded like it sounded like double indemnity or whatever. So Gee. McKay are two died in, wait, can we talk about how McKay dies? Sorry. She died in a car accident. But she walked home. She's like, don't worry, I'm not injured. However, she had severe internal injury and died within hours. I can't respect yeah, that. that. Natasha don't Richardson. worry, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm sorry. These people seem like monsters. I'm sorry. Like They, they murdered this kind of guy. It's just like... <laughs> I know we don't usually like to judge, but... Cancel me if I'm, if I'm acting bad right now. So about his performance in this movie. Oh, it's a good and, performance. Uh, I love it. Yeah. There is I mean, one of the a, scenes. Go on, Sarah. I mean, as a, as a silent actor, I thought he did a really good job because, you know, and a silent actor who was, who was in prison. Are you still reading his Wikipedia page? Yes. Danny Closet. Dorothy McKay's account of her experience, a book called Woman in Prison, was made into a movie called Ladies They Talk About with Barbara Stanwyck, and then was remade nine years later as a movie titled Lady Gangster. Right, okay, I'm close to Wikipedia page. I'm close again. Um, one of the scenes I want to talk about in this movie does involve Paul Kelly, and it is when uh, the detective is going back to verify Mitch's alibi and he comes in his character doesn't have a name his character is just named the man the man comes in uh Jenny's the prostitute is there yelling it's like I hate you you need to leave and he follows the detective out and the camera begins to pan out while he just stands at the top of the stairway ranting down at the detective while he walks down going off about it's like I was in the army and then I was dishonorably discharged. Then this woman doesn't want anything to do with me. I was like, we'll have a, and it's this whole, it encapsulates like this post war, um, discontentment that I find really interesting. And there's just something really striking about as he's ranting down to this person who's moving away, even the camera is moving away from him. And it ends with like, he's very small in the frame and it makes it just like, this is a small man with small problems and much like our killer, he's going to make it everyone else's problem. Yeah. Um, I actually, think... I'll just put it this way. Paul Kelly, problematic fave. I think he's really good in this movie. Like, like I can't deny that it was one of the more interesting performances in this film, even though it's barely in it, you know? Um, and he does do what Caleb just said, kind of hammers home that point uh, in a much different way. Um, but do we want to talk about Gloria Graham because she was Oscar nominated for this somehow? Or just yeah, not? she's not bad. She's not really noticeable. But mm. Sarah, do you guys think anyone thoughts? in the cast is bad? Because I think this is a pretty competent ensemble. Um. Well, I My think Paul opinion, Kelly's probably a bad person. 
Well, I mean, my opinion is like, I don't think anybody's bad, but I think very few people are good. Mm. I would argue that only one person is good, but I'm not going to tell you who. Mm. Mm. A little bit of sizzle. All right. Um, okay. Do we have anything else we want to talk about this? Because, I don't know, we're, we're reaching our time. Uh, I feel like we've broken it down as much as we can besides doing a step-by-step scene, unless there's elements I forgot to talk about, or you guys forgot to there, talk about. There's the strobe lights in the movie theater. Um, the movie theater, I love it. I love a scene in a movie where people go to a movie. Add Big a, fan of it. Add it to your letterbox list. Oh, I did. Um, <laughs> I did want to mention Sam Levine, uh, who plays Samuels, uh, who is also in The Killers. Um, he has one real scene, one or two real scenes where he gets to act um, in this in flashback. In one of those, he's talking to um, he's talking to Mitch about how like throughout the entire war, like we had one thing to focus on and then now we're left directionless. I like that too. It ties into kind of that post-war uh, angst um, and he's, he performs it very well. But that scene also makes a lot more sense to me, Sarah, now that you told me this was, these two characters uh, were gay in the novel because this makes a lot more sense uh, that these two characters would then go to his apartment afterwards um, and just explain why Samuels would be interested in this random soldier in the first place. Uh, well, to be clear, we don't know if the other character was gay, right? Or do we? Right. I mean, that was just something that I, I feel like that might be an implication. Um, but we don't know if Monty is, in fact, gay. Come on. Caleb, don't you realize historic context? You're so caught up on the Hobbit blacklist. You didn't check out the book from the library. Come on. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, do you want to play a game? That's from a movie called War Games, which was not nominated for many. Well, oh, actually, I we actually thinking, won an Oscar. I, I got to look up. I was thinking Saw, which didn't win any Oscars, but it should have. War Games might have actually won an Oscar. Now I gotta check. Uh, Saw should have won an Oscar. I don't know what for. It didn't win any, but it was nominated for three. It does not qualify for this podcast, though. Because I think the cinematography and original screenplay nominations are interesting for War Games. Sound I'll accept. Anyway. (laughs) Um, Oh, there was a sequel to War Games. Anyway. Uh, Sarah, what was this nominated for? Yeah, uh, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Robert Ryan, who, just to be clear, played Monty, um, Best Supporting Actress for Gloria Graham, and Best Adapted Screenplay. All right. So I th- I'm going to get rid of, I'm going to say two options that I think are good. That I'm going to throw out. I do think the direction here is really good. Uh, but as I've said before, I like giving director to a thing that it feels very distinct, whereas I don't actually think this has a thing. Also, um, this guy, <laughs> I don't want him to have an Oscar. Like, sorry. Like, I, I, maybe that shouldn't count for this. Uh, but I don't care. The other thing is adapted screenplay. I wasn't too impressed by it, but then finding out that it's a the anti-Semitism is completely belonging to the film, at least create, makes it be like, you know, an actual adaptation. You know what I mean? Uh, but I... I'm going to give two caveats to this, but I'm giving it to Robert Ryan. 
Um, the two caveats I give is that uh, nowadays I really don't like when the one award for a movie like this goes to the person playing the person who's doing the hate crimes, which happens way too often. Or like, you know what I mean? Like the one nomination is for something like that. That happens very often with movies like this. Uh, I also want to give it the caveat that I know we don't usually talk about this, like what would have actually won. But Chris, come on, Santa Claus winning an Oscar is one of the coolest things that's ever happened. <laughs> like, come on. Like, it gets me sad that this would take that away, but it also doesn't really matter to the rules of this game. I think Robert Ryan does a very good job playing all the facets of the role. He, when he goes big, it is does actually feel kind of threatening to me. It doesn't ever feel, the writing feels big. He doesn't, if that makes sense. Like, he feels very naturally cruel. And then when he's trying to pretend to be, you know, just a nice guy off the street, he does a good job doing that and keeping the pulling the charm up. It's a, I think it's a nice nuanced film and performance. So I'll give it to Robert Ryan. I think he relies on his physicality a lot. That helps because he is the tallest person in the cast. And so he doesn't have to act big. He can just like be big. Yeah. Well, that was going to be mine, so now I have to change it. You don't I'm have just, to change it. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to change it. Yeah, I agree. He was the best one. Easily. Yeah, I kind of thought about writing, too, because I, like, I do like the structure, the dialogue, all that stuff. But I, I think we're just going to have to sweep it for Ryan, because I'm not giving this director, because Dimitri can rot in a cell. Uh, and then... He can, he can suck my Dimitri. Joe, cut that. That was not a good joke. So cut that joke, Joe. That wasn't a good one. He's dead, so it doesn't matter. Um, Yeah, yeah, like... Joe's dead? What? I said Joe's dead? Oh, no! Who's gonna edit this? (laughs) I've replaced him with another Joe. (laughs) Okay, Saki, what were you saying? Yeah, so I think I'm just gonna have to... We're going to have to sweep this. I think there's some other, I don't know. Screenplay could work. I like some of the dialogue, but Robert Ryan, these are weak nominations for this movie. I feel like Robert Ryan is the only person who deserved the nomination out of him and Dimitrik and Graham. So, Oh, okay. And then let's add a nomination then. That would be more worthy than the ones that they gave you besides Robert Ryan. Yeah, this one's much uh, easier for me because I really like the sound in this. Um, there's not a lot of score, and when it does come in, it's uh, it doesn't. It's not really diegetic because it it's supposed to be diegetic, but it's clearly actual score um, because it comes in when they walk into the movie theater and when they're in the club. It's still and all that it comes is part of sound design for me. There's also good sound with. Uh, how it cuts out and how it's silent and stuff like that. I just really like the sound design in this. Mine's going to be kind of a weird one because I'm not totally sure if this is the right award. You can, you tell me. So there's a scene where they all get drunk and the camera is just nuts. However, I believe that that was all done in post. There's a lot of like double images. There's a lot of like skewing the, the camera. So for that reason, um, I'm going to give it best editing because that scene is so out of place. It's That's a very a, cool I scene. I forgot to mention that scene. That scene is really cool. You're right. It's a very cool scene, but it's so out of place and it feels so ahead of its time in a film that I think is pretty dated. 
So it was pretty cool. So I think best editing. Um, all right. Well, we're all giving it something different because I kind of alluded to it earlier. Uh, I think the cinematography here is pretty good. It's um, it's very workmanlike, but then you get these crazy like zoom ins, and then you get the stuff where yes, what Sarah just talked about is more a feat of the editing. But there are some weird angles in that scene too. Uh, like the the cinematographer is having a lot of fun with this movie, even if he's not being too flashy about it. So I got to give it cinematography. All right. So I just want to know we're doing it at the 21st Academy Awards. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. We have a returning filmmaker. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. You're coming back. That's right. The 21st Academy Awards with five nominate oh excuse- yeah five nominations i was reading the crossfire one by accident <laughs> with five nominations and no wins we will be watching drum roll please george stevens i remember mama george stevens directed the talk of the town I was gonna say I I don't remember George Stevens. Which one's Talk of the Town? Is that the one That's with the Ronald Coleman uh Carrie Grant. Grant one? Yeah, we're in there in Carrie Grant yeah. sucked. Yeah. Everyone else was good besides Carrie Grant, shockingly. Um but yeah, we're gonna watch I Remember Mama next time. And we might have a special guest. Maybe no, we, we should just we won't have a say, special guest. We should always end with we might have someone. We don't know. We might <laughs> So that way, whenever we do finally have one, they're just going to be like, I thought they were joking. Like they always do. I'm worried about this. It's over two hours. Yeah, I did see the runtime. It's not very, uh, not very, uh, encouraging, but eh. we'll see if we remember mama. Uh, I'm Danny Vincent. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Blankness for reviews of movies. Um, you can also follow my other podcast, Wise with Ty and Dan, where we're talking about Moon Knight. We're going to get ready to see Doctor Strange. All that fun stuff. Yeah, Doctor Strange. 35 millimeter. Yeah, baby. I am Caleb Bunn. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. Uh, from there, you can find my litany of other podcasts, Hot Trash Unlimited, Star Wars Therapy, and the podcast I do with our editor, Joe, All New 52. Thank you, Joe, for editing this. Thanks, Joe. We're glad you are alive. He probably he probably will cut that joke out, so that'll make no sense. <laughs> That's why it's great. <laughs> Go on. You can find me on Letterboxd. My name, Sarah Knopf. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-E-K-A-Y-29. You can find us on Facebook, the Snub Club, Instagram, Snub Club Podcast, even though I have been on a hiatus on instagram and twitter Pod. all right yeah so we'll see you next time uh with i remember mop bye